Um, now, I'm still relatively new, uh, or young, you might say, in my pastoral ministry. Really? Dave, you? Yes. Okay, I've been at this for all of 11 years in a full-time sense, uh, but I've been in other, you know, um, pastoral ministry kinds of internships for about six years before that as well. But I can already tell you, even as, as a young pastor, um, in no uncertain terms, the things that make my heart leap with joy. When I see people turn to Christ and find in him that they have a loving leader, that they have a solid hope to put their life in, man, that makes my heart leap for joy. Uh, another thing is when I see people learning to love in, in, a, in a deep Jesus-shaped kind of way, giving deeply and generously to others of their time, their resources, for the sake of those around them, or when people take, they're taking responsibility for their relationships. When they've hurt someone else, they take responsibility for it. They, they make amends, they seek that out. When they're hurt by others, they forgive and they do it quickly. My greatest joys in pastoral ministry revolve around those things, but you know, there, there's two things that break my heart as well, like nothing else in the world ever has. And it's actually just the reverse of those, those two. My heart breaks when rather than the Jesus way, staying on God's page of, of giving radical love and grace to those around us, to let that shape how we interact with our family, where there's that self-at-center mode of life that's perpetuated. Man, it comes out especially clear when people maintain that I'm not the problem, they are. Or I I'm not going to open my life to that person ever again, I'm done. Boy, this is a picture that is so opposite the heart of the gospel. So, so you know, when I'm reading this, 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 these letters of John, and, and now 2 John as we're looking at today, my pastor's heart connects with this writer so deeply. I long to see people do the hard work of real love in the real world. And my heart aches as well when I see people who have walked with Christ, or so it seems, and then at some point they begin to believe that something other than Jesus is actually gonna bring them more satisfaction in life. And they begin to believe something, uh, maybe even they're tempted to believe or to doubt their Christian experience altogether, and they begin to slowly give up their faith in Christ and walk away. Man, these are the things that in ministry pain my heart more than anything else. This is what I lose sleep over, folks. <laughs> And these are the primary concerns that we've seen kind of brought up in the letters of, of John. And, and here's what, I, here's what I, I think why we need to hear this message again today. Because you exist for nothing less or nothing else than to be renewed in your relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then to let his love as it's poured out into your heart pour out through you for the sake of of others, and as we'll read today, and as John is gonna say, that is worth defending to the end. So let's just pray as we begin uh, this morning and open our hearts to what this text says. God, we're so thankful that, uh, that you inspired this writer to put the words down in this way. And we thank you, the Holy Spirit, that you're still speaking, that you have, you're, you're making this text come alive to our hearts this morning. We pray that you would, Jesus. We pray that, that you would speak to our hearts in the way that you're calling and, and drawing us to hear it. Uh, encourage us through it th today, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
So if you've got your Bibles with you, whether that's your physical Bible or your, uh, or your Bible app, I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 John. Now, it's the shortest book in the whole Bible. I just had to kind of look again at it and say, yeah, 13 verses. So we're going to read the whole thing. And we're going to talk about the whole thing. Let's start at verse 1 here. It says, the elder, that's the writer, to the lady chosen by God and to her children. I just want to pause there for a second. The elder um, is referring, that's the writer referring to himself. Uh, s- many scholars believe this is the same writer as wrote down First uh, and Third John as well, as well as, as the Gospel of John. Uh, and so he, this person is, is writing and addressing to the lady and her children. This is not speaking of one person, however. Um, this is writing to a church and the members of that church, just to clarify. It's just using just a different way of referring, very personal way. So here's how we go. Uh, the elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing to you a new command, but one that you've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So you see these these first six verses, they're really upbeat, aren't they? Yes, the writer says, you really are a part of God's people, his chosen, grace-soaked, mercy-filled, extravagantly loved children. That is who you are. And the elder is encouraging this church to cling to the hope that they have in Jesus, to keep living this life of love, the very thing they've been commanded from the beginning. And much like the letter of 1 John that we looked at, that the take home for us really comes down to this language of love. I ask that we love one another. I don't wanna rush past this this morning. It's the command we've had from the beginning, he says. Beginning of what? Well, certainly the beginning of Jesus' ministry. For Jesus says, you know, like, how would you know if someone's a follower of Jesus? Do you know how to tell if they are? Well, Jesus tells us in, in John 13, 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That, Jesus says, will make obvious who are my followers, it's in how they treat each other. And again, we saw in 1 John that the content of love, the word agape in the Greco-Roman world, meant like sort of like kind, generous affection toward another person. But in the New Testament, after the coming of Jesus, what he does on the cross, it comes to mean something drastically new. What does it mean? What is love? It points us to the cross. It's, this is what love is. This is how you can know what it looks like. Jesus laid down his life for us, and now we lay down our lives for others. That is the content of the word agape in the New Testament. It's what Jesus did for you. 
in utterly free self-giving for the sake of others, for your sake. And now that is what you and I are called to give to each other. Verse six, as you heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. There's this direction that we're walking in. It's that self-giving direction. It's in the choices we make. Every single one of our decisions that we make in our, in our words, in our actions, in our gestures, in our attitudes, a step taken in love. And now we might be thinking brilliant and beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? It is, isn't it? But then you're thinking, but Dave, that's not me. I can't really see how that could describe my life. Let's talk about that for a minute. First, Jesus gives himself. He dies in our place because that doesn't describe us. There's no need for Jesus to come if, if that could describe your life in your natural self, right? Why would Jesus need to die if you could love God and love others like that? He wouldn't need to. But he does. Why? Because you and I cannot and did not love like that. But we were made to. That's who you're made to be. And so Jesus comes to give us a new heart. Ezekiel talks about this. Taking our heart of stone and changing it until it begins to beat with his own heart. Out of love for each other. Second, so... So we need a new identity, basically. When we put our trust in Jesus, he changes us, gives us a new heart. The life with me at the center, Paul will say over and over again, it's dead. We, need, we just consider ourselves dead to our sin and alive in Christ. And second, this reality we will need to grow into. God intends nothing less or nothing else than to change your life until you look like his son Jesus in the pattern of your existence, in the very way you make decisions. So God, life with God is not about a little tune-up to your already pretty good life. It's not. When the Spirit comes into your life, he will mess with you, mess you up, ruin you for the life. Amen, it's right, he will. God will mess you up. Because it won't be like, well, I'm going along and I can just add Jesus on and he'll give me a little tune-up here and there on those things that I need some help with. No, you will die to that life and become a new creation entirely. And wearing that new creation sort of existence, it's gonna feel awkward. It really is. Because it's a whole new way and pattern of living your life. So what do we do? How do we, how do we live that? First, it is getting on your knees and saying, God, I can't do this life of love. It's not me, but you, you can do it in me. You can transform me. So I open myself to you. That's where it starts. And the promise is that slowly but surely, this is what God will bring about in you. It'll seem slow to us at times. No matter, keep your life open. Uh, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a chapter called Nice People or New People, New Men, he calls it. His point is to address this critique that basically says, so there's non-Christian people who are like way nicer, some of them, than these Christian people over here. Some of these Christian people are not very nice. So obviously Christianity doesn't make sense because it doesn't make a change. Lewis says this. He admits that is logical in one sense. And he goes on to write this. If conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions, if he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful 
or envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think we must be suspect of his conversion. That was largely imaginary. Fine feelings, new insights, greater interest in religion means nothing unless they make an actual behavior. It, it makes their actual behavior better, pardon me. In that way, the outer world is quite right to judge Christianity by its results. When Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. So Lewis says, fair enough. Man, if you can't see a change in people, fair enough. Why would you think that this is, is true? But then he goes on to say, in one sense that's logical, but in another it's not. Let me show you how. And this is the main point. The rest of his chapter is fleshing this out. So he creates two fictional characters to kind of work through this and give some examples. Uh, let me just read you a little bit more of this chapter. Christian, Miss Bates, may have an unkinder tongue. I don't know quite what he means, but I can imagine a few different things. Uh, might have an unkinder tongue than unbelieving Dick Firkin. That by itself does not tell us whether Christianity works. The question is, what Miss Bates's tongue would be like if she were not a Christian, and what Dick's would be like if he became one. Miss Bates and Dick, as a result of natural causes and early upbringing, have certain temperaments. Christianity professes to put both of those temperaments under new management, if they will allow it to do so. What you have the right to ask is whether that management, if allowed to take over, improves the concern. And Lewis goes on to argue that yes, it will. Oh, God's transformation of us, it will take a lifetime. There will never be a time when you're done. See, you don't even know how deeply flawed you are. I don't know how deeply flawed I am. God is gonna be shaping something in me and I'll go, wow, praise God for that. And then I'll be like, oh, and then there's this. Okay, God, do the work you need to do. Keep your life open to him. God's plan is utter renovation. And I love the way that Lewis goes on uh, to paint this hopeful picture, especially to those who've come from a difficult starting place in life. Listen to what he says. There's either a warning or an encouragement here for every one of us. If you are a nice person, if virtue comes easy to you, beware. If you mistake for your own merits what are really God's gifts to you through nature, and if you, contend with, or if you are contented with simply being nice, you're still a rebel, he says. You're just being nice, but you're still a rebel in relation to God. All those gifts will only make your fall more terrible, your corruption more complicated, and your bad example more disastrous. But if you're a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in a house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrel, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, don't despair. Oh, I love that. You don't despair. He knows all about it. You're one of those poor that he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you're, you're trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. Boy, isn't that gracious? Isn't, isn't that beautiful and more important? Isn't it true? All of us has a different starting place when we come to Christ but regardless of where we start, the question is always, will I keep my life open to God's transforming work? As Lewis says, keep on 
Do what you can. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I love what he says. I resonate with this a lot. I'm not the man I should be. Or the man with Christ's help I one day will be, but thank God I'm not the man I used to be. He can point to his own life and say, I'm not there yet, but thank God he is at work in me. And he is, and he's at work in you if your life is open to him. So the word of encouragement, verse 6, I ask that we love one another. That is going to take deep work, a deep work of God in me to make it come alive. But that is his work in us. Let the fruit of that show in your life. But that's actually not the biggest point of the letter. So let's move in to see what that is. There's a very specific issue the church is facing. You see that there's people who have been a part of the church in the past, and a, a number of them, there was this big disagreement. What's it over? Who is Jesus? Is, is he really God's rescuing ruler? Is he really God in the flesh? And so they begin to deny those central elements of Christology. Listen to verses 7 to 13. He writes, I say this because many deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So notice the issue here. What, what theologians often call Christology is that it's about the nature of Jesus. What are these folks denying? That Jesus has come in the flesh. They're denying that he was actually fully human as well as fully God. The claim is that Jesus only seemed to be in a flesh and blood and bone body. Now, the Greek word for seemed is dokeo, and it's, it's where we get the name from. There's a heretical view called docetism. It said Jesus only seemed to be in a body, but really he, was, he wasn't. So docetism says basically the material world is bad, the spiritual world is good, and so therefore God could not have become part of the material world. But we have to see again what the text says. One of the absolute core teachings of Christianity is that Jesus, who is God, is also fully human. Fully human in every sense. The first four verses of 1 John are focused on saying exactly that. Here's where John starts this whole thing. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard audibly, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. We've, we've felt the guy. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The point, Jesus really is fully human, material body as well as being God. And now here's the takeaway of the little letter, verse eight and following. Watch out, he says, that you don't lose what you've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead, essentially leaving behind something, what are they running ahead of? Run ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So what do we do then? Well, here's what his instruction is. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Wow. Tell me what you really think, John. <laughs> that strong language shares in their wicked work. He goes on, I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper 
and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. I didn't have this in my notes, but it just kind of clicked with me last service too. He doesn't want to just write them something that they get as a letter from a distance. He wants to show up in flesh and blood, just like he's talking about how Jesus showed up in flesh and blood in real person. He wants to connect with them like that, and this we'll actually see is is an, an element of our ministry that we need to take seriously, and that's the ministry of presence, being actually present with real people in our ministry. Let me go on and keep reading here. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. So this is being written from the elder and the greeting is coming from the church that he's writing from. That's what it's talking about there. Few observations to begin. First, the big issue is that there's people who have run ahead. They haven't continued in the teaching of Christ and the major issue is not just that they have different beliefs now, but they're trying to make sure that, (laughs) they're trying to share those beliefs with the church, lead people astray, be deceptive about that. The writer is saying that if you deny the son all that he is, the teaching of Christ, you actually don't have any part in the life of God. You've run past God himself. So what is the teaching of Christ that he speaks of? This is important. Uh, Based on what we've seen here and in 1 John and the Gospel of John, This has three primary components, and this essentially is, you could boil this down and say, this is what is at the heart of the good news of the gospel. Here it is. Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, or God's promised rescuing ruler. That's the unique identity of Jesus. Number two, Jesus came in a real flesh and blood body. This is the true nature of Jesus. He's fully God and fully human at the same time. And three, Jesus' death and resurrection in a body, remember, that's part of it, is necessary for our salvation. Salvation that brings us in relation to God and brings us into the kingdom of God or God's gracious reign where we are part of the new creation. That is the work of Jesus. So you have, what do you have? You've, you've got the unique, unique identity of Jesus, his nature, and his work. Now, I've, I've had um, well-meaning Christian friends, and I think it was because of their frustration with all this kind of theology talk and just like the hard work of getting your head around like the doctrine of the Trinity and all that kind of stuff. And they've kind of thrown up their hands and said stuff like this. What really matters is that we love each other. And I would say, yes, we've seen that already in our text. Love one another, that's central to Christian practice But as we read here, it is central to believe in who Jesus is declared to be in the New Testament as well. There are folks who are denying these core issues of the good news of Jesus, and they're called deceivers. Why? As I mentioned, because they don't just deny these elements, they want to teach others to accept their view. No wonder the elder is so clear in his warning. He doesn't want this group to have any influence in changing people's minds about who Jesus is. Now, we might think, well, that sounds kind of harsh, you know, like this idea of, like, just don't do any hospitality. Like, isn't, isn't hospitality a good thing? Even a Christian virtue, you might say? It is. Man, Jesus ate and drank with sinners, and he was hugely criticized by the religious elite for doing that. Table fellowship uh, is a way of signaling, I'm with you and for you, 
And so when Jesus, sitting down with those who were broken, who were needy, who obviously were not living out God's ways, he was signaling this. He's saying, I'm coming to all who are willing to receive me, to receive what I've done for you, to let me change you from the inside out. For all those who know they're broken, my coming signals that God is for you. And so Jesus has come to meet anybody who knows, I'm, I'm sick, I need a doctor, I need healing. And the, the unfortunate thing is the tragedy for the religious leaders in Jesus' day is that they didn't recognize their need for him. And that's the same tragedy in our day too, is when people don't know that their hearts are desperate to be healed, forgiven, restored in relation to God. And, and we see, and this is the this third point, is that Jesus' work is to restore that, to bring us into that new relationship. So, so Jesus is actually signaling God's hospitality toward us, that the God who made the universe, the one who sustains it at every moment, has become one of us and invited us to his table. He shows us what God is like, and he wins us back to relationship. So hospitality is a core practice of Christian faith because it's what God has shown us in Christ. We welcome people into our homes, from our neighborhoods. We welcome them into our, our community here, into different uh, things. We wanna participate in showing them the love of God and being generous and hospitable just as God has been with us. So where is that different from what the elder writes? And it's very different. They're not to show hospitality in this case. Because these folks aren't just like, oh, I'm interested in Christianity and getting to know you more and here's some of my views, what are yours? I'm interested to seek this out. No, they are coming into the church in order to deceive people about who Jesus is. And so John draws a line and says, don't even let them in your door. Don't let them in because this matters so much. This is a very specific warning for a very specific context and time in history. But what does it say to us today in ministry? First, I'm gonna give you not what John is writing about, but I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say that hospitality is so core to Christian practice that we need to follow Jesus' pattern of incarnational ministry. I know that's not John's main point, but it's to make sure that we guard from not misunderstanding what John is saying in this as well. Let me, let me put it like this. This text should not lead us to be sectarian or protectionistic when it comes to showing hospitality to people in general. We need to be deeply hospitable. It's a key element of faithful witness in our world to open up our doors to others. It's a central part of Jesus mission, and we need to be a part of it. At Young Adults, uh, every Monday night, we host 18 to 35-ish year olds, and, um, and we, put a, we put a meal on, and we, put, we, we set the table for people to come, university students, many of them, many of them from backgrounds, uh, they have, some have no basis with the Christian faith at all. They come from, I just come from a, like a secular home, I don't know anything about this. Others are coming from other faith backgrounds. I grew up in this kind of family, or here's what I believe. And we set the table for everyone. Why? Because we believe that everyone needs to hear of the life-giving work of Jesus. And we're gonna be hospitable and set the table so that that 
can happen. So at the center of every one of these Monday night evenings is the good news of Jesus. Him coming in the flesh for you, him crucified, raised again, and returning to renew all who trust in him. So our approach to culture is to adopt that same kind of approach that Jesus had in coming to us. In fact, Jesus said in in John chapter 20, he says, as the Father sent me, as means in the same way, so I am sending you. We are to be going into the world in the same way that Jesus came to us. How was that? Real flesh and blood and bone in real relationship with other people. I want to call it incarnational ministry. Uh, too often Christian ministry can become docetic. And what I mean by that is, is, is this. We talked about this heresy of docetism where it seems like Jesus only appeared to be in the flesh but wasn't really, wasn't you know, kind of on the ground rubbing shoulders, interacting with people. So too, Christian ministry can be sort of dislocated from the real world. There's no real interaction or you know, deep involvement with rubbing shoulders with people who need to know Christ. We can think of ministry as something that belongs within these protected four walls. That's not what John is arguing for in this, in this text. That's what I wanna say this morning. See, Jesus meets humanity right where we are. Um, I love the way Eugene Peterson worked uh, in, in his message, uh, writes John 1, 14, he says it like this, the word, speaking of Jesus, the eternal son of God, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's the pattern that we follow in our engagement with our culture. Moved into the neighborhood, involved in the life, rubbing shoulders with those in our neighborhood, our workplaces, our school, the marketplace. We're to be hospitable people, creating spaces for conversation about God, where safe dialogue can happen for those who are hungry to know if they can really believe this Jesus thing. Uh, Gary Tyra is a mission professor, and he says it like this, taking seriously that we are part of the incarnational response. Someone, I love this, it's like someone's gotta try this sometime, interesting. Someone from the evangelical world needs to come alongside these confused, hurting, post-Christian young adults and serve them. Amen. Someone must enter into their lives and build the kind of humble, reciprocal relationships that provide psychological air to breathe and allow them to open up in genuine dialogue regarding the radical claims of Christ and an encounter with his transformational spirit. That, that's what we do on Monday nights, if you've ever been here. (laughs) And that's what we're gonna keep doing as a church. Just one quick story about this. There was a gal, uh, I didn't, like I'd met her a few times at Young Adults this winter. I didn't really get a chance to have a good conversation with her, but one night afterwards she came up to me I told the story already? Doesn't matter, I'll tell it again. Uh, she came up to me and said, uh, Dave, I just wanna say thank you so much, and can you help me find a church? Oh, okay, so uh, she said, oh, I'm going back home now. I was just here for a couple months, and I'm heading back up, and you know what? I, I want to follow Jesus with my whole life now. So, oh, okay, tell me more about this, I'm interested. She said, well, I just, you know, some people invited me and I, and I came and there was this meal every week and I got to sit down and get to know people who loved me and I got to see this community kind of function. I've never been a part of a community like that where people love each other in this way. So I was, I was interested in that way. But then you got on stage and every week you talked about Jesus and what he was about and I began to fall in love with him and I, I want to follow Jesus with my whole life. 
wow, okay, so like, did you make a, a choice? She's like, I don't, I don't know, what do I need to do next? I said, well, let's, let's pray together, let's start there. And this is this beautiful time of watching this person. Where did it start? With this hospitality, this openness, this setting the table for people to come and hear the good news of Jesus, to experience community and life together. So I helped her find a church, try to see her get plugged in where she was going next. But this is just a signal this hospitality, this life together and living it out for others to be a part of is, is central to Christian ministry, core practice of the church. Um, also, we're offering an Alpha course this, uh, this upcoming fall, and Alpha essentially does the same thing. We, we set a table for people, a meal, and then we have a conversation. We watch a short video and have a conversation about the radical claims of Jesus. Uh, if you want to be a part of that, if you have friends you need to invite, begin to pray for them now. If you... If you're interested in just coming yourself or if you want to help out, be a volunteer, come, send me a message. We'd love to get you connected with that. So I wanted to be clear about what this text wasn't saying. It wasn't saying, keep your doors locked to everyone unless they believe exactly the same things as you. That's not what it's saying. What does it mean? It means this. We need to exercise discernment. I've tried to show that the specific concern is with false teachers and it's not over a trivial matter. Somewhere around the city of Ephesus, people are going and they're trying to, they're, they're evangelists to say that Jesus is not God. And our writer says, just don't even have anything to do with them at this point. Now the issue facing the church is about the central issue of the gospel. So what does it say to us today? Uh, we need to be discerning when it comes to teaching, especially about Jesus himself. That's one of the, the realities is um, theological discernment. That's a primary responsibility for church leadership. Um, Paul says this to the young Timothy a pastor. He says, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted with, to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Guard that deposit. What's the deposit? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this centers on the person and work of Jesus, his identity, his nature, and his atoning work for us. Timothy's to guard it with the help of the Spirit. Later on, actually, uh, Paul will tell Timothy, he says, Timothy, you need to study the scriptures. You need to show that you're an approved workman, that you know what you're talking about when it comes to Jesus and this good news of the gospel. So stay committed to it. It's why we require that our pastors are, are trained, that they've gone through years and years of, of faithful study. Second, we need to stay rooted in the teaching of Jesus, his unique identity, his saving work for us. And two quick points about that. One is we need to read the Bible for all it's worth. And we need to do that in relation, in conversation with historic Christianity. Um, reading the Bible well guards us from errors about Jesus and who he is. But, and this is gonna sound odd to us, maybe for a moment, every one of the heretical movements that Christians had to wrestle with over the years, where, where people had been teaching wrong things about Jesus, in every case, the people who were making these claims about Jesus also had their Bibles open too. So just simply having your Bible open doesn't guarantee that you come to the right conclusions about Christ. There's, there's faithful ways of reading this and there are unfaithful ways, okay? 
And so what I'm arguing is, is, or trying to encourage us in, is that we do stay rooted in the history of the church who have wrestled through these issues deeply. God has given us wisdom through the ages. And so in many of the ancient creeds, the focus is on defending almost always, and in every case, the majority of it is defending one thing. It's the nature, the identity, and the work of Jesus for us. Gary Burge, he says it like this. These creeds and what we see in the New Testament documents where people are saying, this is the firm line, it's on this. We have life only through Jesus Christ, God's Son, who truly became for us our salvation. Became one of us, pardon me, for our salvation. So there's important areas of theology that Christians can legitimately disagree with. Uh, The timing and mode of baptism, important issue. It's secondary, though. Church governance, how do you structure things? Important, secondary. Calvinism, Arminianism, like how does God's sovereignty work in the real world? Important, but secondary. When did God create? How did he do it exactly? Important question. Secondary. Who is Jesus, and how did he accomplish what he did for us? Totally and absolutely core to the Christian faith, the way that you answer that question. That one matters. That one matters. For example, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, there was a guy named Arius. He was a bishop in the church, but he began to say stuff like this. Jesus is a created being, like an angel. And Jesus is not uh, co-eternal with God the Father and is not equal with God the Father. So a council is called, a group of of all the church leaders from that area, they all get together in Nicaea. It's in modern-day Turkey, just south of Istanbul, across the the sea there. And here's what the conclusion is they came to. Notice just where the ink is spilled. Notice where the focus is. I'm going to read it for you. This is where we're kind of wrapping up today. Where did I write that? Here it is. Okay. We believe in one God. How many? One. One One God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. Good. We're all on the same page, right? Great. Okay, we're following. Good. I like it. Awesome. Love this. Oh, here we go. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is... From the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate, enfleshed, becoming man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens and will come again to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit." There is precise grammar for describing who God the Son is. Now, if that language is a bit confusing, you are not alone. Um, Check out our sermon series on YouTube from last year in June. We went through the doctrine of the Trinity in four parts. That was supposed to be kind of a joke, but it was, we needed four parts to do it. The main point, and it's the main point of our letter today, Jesus, his nature, his identity, his work, that's the center of the Christian faith. Or better, he is the center of the Christian faith. As I spoke about last week, there will always be pressure on the church, and there is now, just as there was in the first century, there will be pressure on us to dilute who Jesus is, to say, oh, yeah, he's one of many great teachers, or he's one of the kind of religious figures in in, in our world. No, the New Testament says, 
there's a line you draw there. Jesus is Lord of all and everything. It is only through Jesus that the way to the Father is opened. It's him and him alone that, that get the glory and the honor. And so here's my questions as the worship team comes forward for us to wrestle with, to think through, to pray through. The question really is, who is Jesus? That's, that's the question. Who is he? That's the question. And the most important question to you, to us, is will I give him the place of first and best in my life? Will I line myself up with the reality of who he is and then let him lead me? Or will I keep living in a space of compromise on the most important questions of all? Let's pray. God, we just ask that you would remind us again that who you are is the biggest question ever. And Jesus, for all those who are at a place where you're interesting or you're a good teacher, but you're not Lord yet, you're not the saving king in someone's life, I just ask God that your Holy Spirit would be working right now. That person or that persons might come to a place where they say, even today, Jesus, uh, be my king and my lover, my leader. I need your forgiveness. Thank you. Jesus, for those of us who maybe have been following you a long time, but who find it easy to let other things just have, have our attention, God, would you be f first and foremost again? We confess to you our need to, uh, to put aside any form of idolatry of loving something better than you, that you might be first again. So Jesus, be the center in my life, in our life as a community. Be the center. To say I believe in the name of Jesus is to say I am firmly placing my trust, my whole life, my future, the direction that I'm going with my life in his hands. See, belief is not just an intellectual ascent. Uh, it includes that, but then it says I put my trust there. He's the one who will lead my life. So we read in verse 9, anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ doesn't even have God. Just don't. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or maybe even more importantly, God has you. Remain rooted there and let that drive how you live this week.